Hello, and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr. Rosie Anderson, and every Thursday this summer, I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. Sex sells, so the cliche goes. What the cliche doesn't go into is who's buying. Maybe because for so long, the answer was that all money ultimately belonged to a man. So when we say sex sells, we've really been talking about one type of sex. The type of sex heterosexual, socially advantaged men want, or are told they should want. And all the sexualization and anxieties about sexuality and power that go with that. Despite all the changes that have happened for women across the world since mass advertising has been a fact of life, the role of this one type of sex in shifting products never really went unchallenged, just as it stayed on top in film, music, theatre, literature, and it's become part of the fabric of our lives and of our cities. A few years ago, Professor Jessica Ringrose from the IOE and Dr Caitlin Reguerre were asked by the London Mayor's Office to investigate what women saw when they travelled through the city, how images of women impacted their well-being, and whether they felt represented in the images they saw in advertising. With the participation of a diverse group of London women and girls, including Naomi Peter, they showed how invisible some women are in popular culture, and the hunger there was for images that represented their experiences of inhabiting their womanhood. I spoke with them and with sexuality educator Amelia Jenkinson about how their findings have changed policy and sex and relationships education in London and across the UK. Thank you for talking to me, first of all. It's really nice to have us all in the same room. I, I was going to ask first up Jessica and Caitlin about how you came to be doing the particular piece of work that we're going to be talking about, which was commissioned by the Mayor's Office in London. And what were the events leading up to that? And how, how did you become involved in, in doing this work in the first place? Okay, so you might have remembered um, a big media event in London in 2015 where there was a really controversial advertisement uh, with a really skinny blonde woman in a bikini, yellow bikini, and it said, you know, beach body ready. And it was are for. Are you beach body are, ready? Are you beach body ready? <laughs> and it was for um, a protein powder. Um, and um, women just were, and girls, got really angry about mm. this representation and this invocation with the question mark um, in this advertisement. And there was quite a viral protest. Um, and at the time, I was studying some teenage girls who actually went on the protest in Hyde Park. And they had a write-up um, in The New Statesman. Uh, they did a story on them. And um, I guess perhaps the mayor of London maybe got a hold of this and saw that I was um, doing some research on this topic. And they approached me um, in the late 2017 about a campaign they were going to be doing for um, Greater London Authority called The Women We See. And it was all about how do women and girls in London feel about representations, particularly in public advertising, um, what's problematic, and what can we do to change what may or may not be problematic. Yeah, and I think it's, it's it, what was really interesting is that it was such a clear reaction to that public outcry. There was such kind of a visceral public outpouring in reaction to this particular advertisement. So the the mayor's office decided to do something about it, and they said, "Okay, how can we how can we change this?" 
And in fact, Sadiq Khan himself said he didn't want his daughters living in this context. He wanted mm -hmm. to personally do something mm -hmm. about it, um, which we thought was really fantastic. Mm -hmm. And Naomi, Amelia, do you remember this happening at all? Were you, I mean, I don't even know if you were living in London at the time. I wasn't, but I do remember it actually. And I do remember seeing that advert. I was living in Newcastle, so even up north. We heard about it. Uh, yeah, no, I remember quite quite vividly. But also, as well as the outcry, there was there was also an outcry against the against the protest. Mm. Um, people complaining about why, why what's wrong with with what we're seeing. Mm. Um, yeah, I do. I, that's what I do remember. Mm. That's absolutely right. The brand got in touch and actually challenged a lot of the protesters. They they went onto Twitter mm. and actually rebutted a lot of what was being said and I think that's a really important part that uh, you have these you know young women taking to to both the streets and to social media to voice their distaste for this and you have a brand with all the power that a brand you know has actually talking back to them and saying no you're you're wrong yeah i really remember that aspect of it um i was doing a masters in london at the time so I remember seeing the adverts and feeling um pleased when they had been graffitied um and following the <laughs> twitter threads with people um kind of posting pictures of themselves swearing at the adverts and things um but um i was running a like sort of small feminist project with a with a um a colleague as well so yeah we were definitely sort of aware aware of it happening and um sort of no more page three and things happening at the same time yeah. so there have been quite a lot around a sort of representation i suppose when that moment happened there's it was a very important year 2015 right that that you had all of a sudden people feeling that they could talk back to things this is the this is the year mm. of me too right yeah. which followed that autumn after that summer campaign so there was i think 2015 was a really important moment in time where you have women starting to you know challenge the status quo in the media in a very kind of concrete substantive way mm -hmm. so i think you're right to say that that actually people start to say wait a minute why do i have to be bombarded with this just to go to work or school yeah i i think i think the idea that you could answer back to that was something that was yeah. emerging at that point wasn't it mm -hmm. it's also quite depressing though because they actually generated a massive amount of advertising revenue off of that ad so mm -hmm. you know yeah. both the kind of backlash but there, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but it went up massively because of the controversy that was created. So ultimately, it was like a kind of like a, a tricky way of trying to actually like get their brand bigger um, <clears throat> protein world. So you do have to think about the economics of it and what's going through their mind when they do these kind of things and these stunts. Mm. So. so Naomi, how did you get involved? I was invited. <laughs> <laughs> I was invited and then came down um, and had a talk and I thought it was going to be quite casual and then there was like a whole mini production crew. I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just effectively as a Londoner, um, shared my personal experience. And, and were you particularly drawn to it as a research topic? Is it something that you'd given a lot of thought to in um, the past? Yes, I mean entirely. Uh, for me, representation is absolutely key. It hasn't been around in many areas growing up. I mean, for me, watching television, 
not seeing any people of colour mm. was normal. I remember when I said to my mum, I was like, yeah, you know, when we were young, we used to love the cowboys and Indian films. And she was like, well, no, that's all that they had, basically. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the roles were always so stringent and they still kind of are. I mean, it's improving, but that's because we're allowing also women into the space. So it's not pre predominantly led by straight, cis, white men. Um, and as, as soon as you create diversity, just not, not just in how people look, but also skill sets and mm -hmm. culture backgrounds and how people think, you end up with a far greater representation, which just makes everyone feel included. So is that something I'm interested in? Yes, because I mean, I mm -hmm. like to work in those spaces. I work in it from a creative aspect. And for me, I always pay much more attention to bring women within the industry because it's so heavily male dominated and also not overly, overly sexualized because that's another thing that we have mm. within the marketing and, and branding um, area. Yeah, and I think like one thing that was in, in many ways quite unique about this project is we had these three kind of big institutions coming together. We had the academic institution. So there was this research-led project that then was feeding into, and Naomi's absolutely right, a fairly surface industry, right? Advertising. And so we were operating in conversation with kind of corporate marketing. And then we had this policy angle at this uh, also. So the other big, big kind of institution was, was government. And so we were trying to triangulate all of these things within this project. And so, yes, there was the advertising campaign, but ultimately I feel like the biggest change we were able to make was the policy change. So to feed into advertising standards. It's a different proposition, isn't it? Then how do we how do we market research this? How do we how do we take this out into the world and market research this mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, tap into the disaffected people who went on that march and sell them some stuff? <laughs> it's a different thing to yes. sort of having a conversation about the kind of environment you want to live in, the kind yes. of society you want to live in. How do we set some standards for that? Which is more what you all were trying to do, as well as shape some of those day by day decisions that are being made in advertising companies and things. Mm -hmm. But that is a big project and mm -hmm. that's a big task. And you used some very creative methods to go about investigating that. We were really interested in how different women from different boroughs moved through London and used public space. And so we had really diverse encounters. So. You know, we had, I picked up one individual from a nightclub at two in the morning to take her on her trip home. Um, and kind of the, the nervousness that she had about that, we talked about, we thought about, you know, what her journey was like in contrast to a woman in Southwest London who was a pensioner who just wanted to walk out to get her milk. You know, in contrast to a woman in North London who wanted to do her very first journey on the overground with her baby postpartum, right? So we had these very diverse encounters with individuals. And in our initial interviews, I would call them and we'd figure out, you know, what would be a journey that was most indicative of their use of London? Uh, and then we would travel on this journey and 
those journeys might have been by foot or by tube or by bus. Um, and I think what was so fascinating about these really kind of textured encounters was we realized that advertisements change the space. Mm -hmm. So we had one uh, woman who identified as differently abled and black British who had two children and she wanted to take the bus to take her um, children to the library of seven and a four-year-old child. And when we walked up to the bus stop, there was a giant advertisement for American Apparel in a woman in flesh-colored underwear that was almost the you know the entire side of of a bus stop. Mm-hmm. And she said, "You know, I'm able to monitor the advertising that my children see in my home. If an ad pops up on my laptop, I turn the laptop over. I wait five seconds, and then." I turn it back over and the ad has gone. And that's how I protect my children. But I can't flip the bus stop over. And it's through these traveling interviews that we really got a sense that public advertising is non-consensual. And as a result of that, it needs to be held to a higher standard. And that was a big finding within our work. Absolutely. Well, we had a very similar type of experience. We went to one of our research schools and we got out of the train and um, there was one of the Boohoo advertisements of the, you know, tasseled uh, bodysuit. And so when we went into the school, this Boohoo advertisement, which is very close to their school grounds, became the topic of the conversation and how, um, you know, these kinds of advertisements made the girls feel, um, you know, they felt that it was very sexualizing. Um, They felt that there could be a way of wearing that bodysuit, maybe in a particular environment, like Mm -hmm. a festival or something. But the way that they were being sold, this bodysuit didn't, wasn't really like that. It was, it was more that it was, it was more that this advertisement made them feel bad about themselves when they were walking past it on the way to school. And they um, had to pass it to get they to had school, to which it. I think is crucial. Yeah. That was on their school journey. They couldn't not pass it. Absolutely. So what we did with young people to try and find a space of like resistance and talking back to these processes is we um, designed an arts-based methodology of collaging. So what we would do is we would bring in a whole bunch of different advertisements. We'd bring in the free ones from the tube um, and just a whole bunch of different magazines. And we would just um, set them a task of, and it was just a big blank sheet of paper. And like, you know, what would you like to see differently in advertising? And it was like incredible. These um, beautiful collages they made, um, they separated into small groups. and all sorts of really critical, amazing messages, you know, about body hair, about thinness, about ability, about, you know, um, LGBTQ rights, just anything you could think of because the young people were, you know, extremely critical and savvy. And those collages became a really important part of the project because they provided a vehicle 
a, a voice of the young people when they themselves couldn't be there. So Naomi, I don't know if you remember when we were at the launch of the research, mm-hmm. we had those collages In prominently displayed mm-hmm. yes. and people kept going up to them and touching them and commenting on them and saying how amazing they were. And so. that's the power of these innovative arts-based methodologies because they were actually capturing young people's voices. Mm-hmm. They're showing the critically resistant kind of like, I know that Amelia has gone on to kind of like use that in in different ways in in the work that she's been doing in school of sexuality education my favorite was like taking a model then drawing little tiny black hairs all over (laughs) her arms (laughs) (laughs) and her legs and her legs legs. yeah yeah Yeah. and even the bikini line yeah 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 we um were really inspired by the collages which has um informed a big part of our body image workshop that we do in schools primarily in secondary schools um and we actually start um as per the whole project with the beach body ready adverts and explain about the complaints about the image um and ask students like why why do you think it kind of had this reaction to start that conversation um so we give them a bit of scaffolding and a bit of space to think critically about representation the images that we see around us the impact of that before we go into the collaging um we use things like um mtv decoded has a great video on kind of white beauty standards and and that sort of thing so giving them similar to the project that kind of intersectional framework to think about yeah body image representation um And then we follow a very similar methodology. So give them a bunch of um, magazines of printed out adverts um, using like the Boohoo advert and things like that to sort of recreate um, all of those images that were really integral to the the project. Um, And they work together in small groups. Again, we leave it fairly open and say like, do be as creative as you like. and then the the great thing about it is that we have this physical artifact to leave in the school at the end as well, which then they can display somewhere to get other students thinking critically um, about these topics and take photos of them and sort of post them on social media and things so that um, it goes beyond just the, the workshop itself, but can really sort of, yeah, I guess do that, that critical consciousness raising more broadly. So then based on these qualitative arts-based methodologies, we have the documentary style traveling interviews and the craftivism workshops in schools, we then developed the quantitative survey, which I feel was quite innovative often if you have kind of a mix qual and quants um, methodological approach, you'll have a big survey and then you'll just slap some qualitative interviews on the top to get a bit of texture, you know, whereas we were actually going the other way around. Yeah. We had the the qual informing the survey. Absolutely. People hated those boohoo advertisements, right? And they said yeah. they were sexualizing. Yeah. And then we would get like responses like, you know, um, and this what, was a survey of 2000 people. So yeah. it was like, you know, you know, that it isn't actually like being used to sell the product. And also just like the failure of the advertising to represent Londoners. Um, They felt very unrepresented. And the groups that felt the the least represented were uh, black Londoners and older women um, felt basically said they felt like completely invisible and not represented at all. What about the disabled? 
because I hardly ever see them being represented. I mean, that all. definitely came out in our qualitative research. Yeah, it came out stronger, yeah, I think, in the qualitative. Um, maybe statistically there just wasn't enough respondents, but okay. um, it was definitely one of our recommendations because mm-hmm. when we went around making our binder of prompts, we couldn't find we couldn't a single find. image of a disability. So we took some images. No, there was not a single one okay. in the entire TFL. So we ended up going and taking some from online, online just resources. to sort of say, okay, this is what an advertisement could, could look like. <laughs> but we couldn't find a representation in um, 2018. Mm-hmm. Something, we, I mean, so just to put my nerdy researcher hat on for a moment, it's very interesting because you're right, you, quite often people will do a big quantitative survey and then they'll they'll add a little a little bit of spice, a little yeah. bit of texture yes. with some with some personal stories, which illustrates some things that they found yeah. from that big big picture, quote unquote. Yeah. You flip that on its head, mm-hmm. and from a, from a research point of view, that's taking an approach which is about building your own theory up to a point, or building your own framework at least. And there's something very powerful in doing that, I think. And as I as I was listening to both you, Amelia, but I've also been wondering about you, Naomi, because you have a creative practice of your own. Um, you know, what is so powerful about about being able to start asking the questions in your own words, as opposed to answering other people's questions and telling your story? Because that's what is being described here. I think the methods really allow the conversation to be student led. And I suppose the images that they're seeing are changing in a lot of ways, as we've spoken about. So I suppose um, we're able to keep the conversation fresh and contemporary by giving them some images, but then inviting them to offer their kind of ideas and contributions around um, the people that they see, the bodies that they see, how that affects them. And obviously so much of that is social media now, which, um, yeah, as we've said, is a whole new, a whole different different area, but this really creates that kind of launch pad um, for discussion and hopefully kind of discussion in the wider school as well. And we have had students um, creating sort of group Instagram accounts and things afterwards to raise, to, to sort of raise awareness of body positivity and things like that. So um, really feeling empowered um, by having the opportunity to, to put their voice out there. Um, I think especially as classroom spaces can often be quite hierarchical and structured, it's a real flipping of that. So, okay, we've started a new company, right? I'm part of this new company until, and even though we are consciously and every week being um, wanting to be representative, wanting to be mindful, wanting to be diverse in all of the aspects and areas, we're now finishing branding, right? And it, the guy's really lovely, he's a white male, but whenever we saw the examples that they'd always be straight white men, and it's, it, it was like, which part of diverse <laughs> and inclusion are you just not getting? And he's a lovely guy and he, he definitely wants it. And then that's when I also realized how much more difficult it is to actually implement these things because even with intention we have an inbuilt bias right Right. and if you've been doing something one way for so many years then it's going to be really hard for you to teach yourself how to get outside of that but that's also why i think it's important to have an actual diverse table Mm -hmm. so that you can continuously work together what naomi has brought up so well is this idea of what neutral is Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that there is a neutral and that is 
you know, white and male, or it's it's white and female that fits into a very, very specific box, a very, yeah. very specific set of criteria. And I think when we did the report and then launched this advertising campaign, that's what we were really trying to get people to challenge, mm. is like, we really need to expand what this so-called neutral mm. is. Absolutely. Right? And it wasn't just about representing more white women. It was about having lots of different diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting going back to the survey, because we also asked, of course, you know, who did feel comfortable. And the people that felt the most comfortable with the advertising landscape of London was um, 25 to 30-year-old white men. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, they feel great. And everyone else feels, you know, crappy. So that just kind of like the survey really bore out a lot of really kind of like uncomfortable truths that, you know, we really put forward in the report. And we were like, this is like not okay. These things have to change because you're making people feel uncomfortable. And you're actually ending up making a lot of women feel unsafe when you're hypersexualizing the space mm-hmm. through these types of advertisements, like Caitlin said, that you can't get rid of. You're standing there with your children. You're on the tube. You're at the bus stop. It's not okay. We have mm-hmm. to hold public advertising to a higher level of accountability. Mm-hmm. You know when you talk <clears throat> about hypersexuality, mm-hmm. hypersexual mm-hmm. space, space, mm-hmm. um, is it something that you guys want to completely erase, eradicate, or, or what level is, is acceptable? What, what level is okay? I mean, I think it's a very complicated dynamic, and it's not sexuality no. that is the issue. Yeah. It's like sexuality being used in a particular way, hypersexualizing particular bodies to sell products. The human body is not inherently problematic in any way. It's just like what is being done to it for what means, like the male gaze, right? It's like being presented in a particular way to create certain conditions of, like we were discussing, like shame, like I don't fit into this box, I'm not good enough, I don't look at like this, I'm not gonna be able to like, you know, we're in a hierarchy where certain people are rewarded for particular ways they look and don't look or whatever. So I think it's like, all of that and maybe trying to like critically challenge that and maybe if it was like the production of those images was even more um with the agency of the person in the image maybe even but we we don't get that sense when we see some of those images like the american apparel you know models her legs splayed open with like her flesh underwear right like it's doing a particular thing it's meant to kind of like provoke like I am, I am, I'm, I'm pro-sex. I'm pro-sexuality. <laughs> um, just want y'all to know. Um, I, but, but what I, what I think is important, and what we were trying to get across in this project is that this is public space in London that is accessible to everyone and should feel safe and comfortable for everyone. But the sexualization of space was one of the big, in our survey, was one of the biggest things that people had a problem with. So this might be an interesting moment to bring in you again, because uh, I'm very keen to talk about the difference between sex education and sexuality Mm. education. I mean, I grew up with sex education, which was (laughs) very mechanical, (laughs) and I'm hoping it's changed. 
but uh, I'm afraid not. Unless you get humiliated. Unless we, yeah. It seems in that public space, the people who are maximum comfortable are men, white men, aged 25 to 30. And everybody else is being asked to uh, make themselves acceptable to that demographic or to imagine that they are that demographic and produce content that would be that would speak to them. And that is the sort of way that you find a, a platform. Yeah. But there are so many different sexualities, um, including that one, for, for a culture to venerate one at the expense of the others is really really kind of one of the things which this research is partly about. What is it like to put the tools in the hands of young people who feel they're underrepresented mm. in those depictions of desire, beauty, love, lust, whatever? Mm. Because that's what you all have in common. You use methods which give people the tools that allow them to do that. So yeah, I guess in sort of UK policy, um, sex and relationships education is the term that's used um more internationally there's um sexuality education which essentially aims to take a more holistic look at um young people and their and their needs so moving away from the mechanical biological reproductive um traditional sex ed that um we probably all had and obviously a lot of the time young people in the uk um are still offered but we are obviously a, a relationships and sex sexuality education charity and would cover body image as part of that the idea being that you can't really extrapolate these kind of different inter interlinked aspects of a um, of an individual um in terms of young people's reactions to doing the collaging for example i think you definitely see that positionality that we've been talking about in terms of identity and your relationship to to images and um i think that the strength of the activity is that there will be some people who will um feel very passionately about the topic about body image about certain aspects of um, representation that we've been talking about are able to create something that shows that they can work with whoever they feel comfortable with or they can work individually to put their thoughts and their um ideas down on paper in whatever way kind of feels right for them creatively um, and then for other people in the class who maybe have never thought um, about the fact that a certain image might make people in their um, peer group feel angry um, and for people to say like I, I don't want to see this and this, this is how it affects me that's then there for, for them to see so there's that opportunity for kind of learning and de developing those sort of skills of empathy I suppose and thinking about the fact that you won't react in the same way to certain topics and than your peers and yeah. I guess about yes kind of privilege and things like that as well um but in quite a gentle way and in a in a sort of peer, peer learning sense turning back to the GLA yeah. and turning back to the original sort of impetus for this research why why it got commissioned you know it's very interesting to think of uh a government of any kind starting to work with this treasure trove of stories and really rich, really layered stuff and then making decisions based on that. But that's what happened. And, mm -hmm. and do you want to tell us a little bit about what did happen? How, what, what were some of the recommendations perhaps we could start with and then what did they do with them? Well, I mean, I do have to say that the people at the mayor's office are amazing. Like they knew about intersectionality. They wanted an intersectional framework, which means that we know that everyone has a diverse positionality. Everyone has a race, class, gender, ability, all of these intersecting factors that create 
um, people and that these are based on power hierarchies like they understood the theory and that like can't be underestimated because then you have like a supportive um, conducive environment to create change um, so that was really incredible um, they were really open to the recommendations which were like we need more inclusion we need more diversity people don't feel represented you know people want advertisements to be held to some kind of like you know, accountability, they um, they shouldn't be like overly photoshopped or using bodies to sell uh, products that have no relationship to the product type thing. Um, so a whole bunch of different um, recommendations. Then we got into the the uh, competition, which was amazing, um, Trans Transport for London, uh, um, uh, sort of launched a kind of call for creatives um, in advertising to come up with a campaign that could kind of embody these um, recommendations. So that's incredible because what was on the table for those brands was um, a lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> I won't say how much, but you know, you were going to be free getting advertising. free advertising on the TFL for a sustained amount of time to the winning brand. And that was a huge motivation. Which is the most valuable um, real estate for for public advertising in the world. 90 creative brands. Like 90. So that's like 90 teams responded, right? So think about all those brains trying to come up with something better, mm -hmm. um, which is just amazing <laughs> that they're like, oh my God, they're reading our report. Yeah. Um, so cool. From a personal perspective, the winning campaigns are quite interesting for both mm -hmm. myself and Caitlin. So the winner was Holland and Barrett's um, Me No Pause. It was basically fighting the stigma of menopause. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, that was pretty cutting edge and pretty radical to be doing. It was drawing attention to the issue, right? And what was really cool about Holland and Barrett, too, is that they actually trained our workforce to have menopause awareness. Mm -hmm. So they took a real holistic institutional or organizational approach to it, which is going beyond just a billboard, right? Like they're actually taking the issue seriously. Personally for me, I'm going through menopause. So it's been extremely interesting to see that campaign and then the sort of the after effects of it. And then the runner-up the runner up was Mother Care, um, and, and it was a campaign about postpartum bodies. Um, and I was actually pregnant at the time. And, I, I, you know, I always think it's the, one of the most ridiculous things after you have a baby is that people, the nicest thing people can say to you is, oh, you don't even look like you just had a baby. There's this kind of <laughs> erasage, you know, we really want to erase the postpartum body. Like the best thing that can happen to you is that the people don't know that you created a life, right? And so the, what was so amazing about the mother care campaign was that you had these postpartum bodies um, with, you know, all their glorious stretch marks and cesarean scars showing while holding their babies. And I think there was just this real um, celebration of these bodies that had just birthed. And Naomi, um, if you were to walk your walking interview again now, you've already hinted that you feel like things are shifting a little bit, but do you, do you feel like there would be a different walk now? Um, do you think that would be a different environment in terms of the images of well, women's bodies? Yeah, a lot, a lot of um, companies have taken 
decided to hold the baton, albeit genuine or ingenuous. This is facts. So yes, you are seeing a lot more, but also I feel there is um, a huge shift due to individuals. Like, so social media is, is extremely powerful. And when you talk about stretch marks on, you know, after birth, like so many women are showing off their natural body and mm. I've never seen so many of, the, of these images before in my whole life until now. Mm. And I'm like, how is this not? <laughs> like, I, I'm a woman, right? How comes I didn't really know what these bodies looked like? Mm. Um, just because they weren't represented and companies then, they, they, they love to follow away. So they'll they'll listen to you, lots of research. They'll, they'll look at people who are making waves on social media and they'll implement it. Um, so yes, definitely you do see um, change. I still obviously like more, <laughs> a lot more. Um, and I'd like it to feel a lot more authentic because it's not in most cases. When you are not part of a culture, it just never feels the same. You know it's coming from other. When you bring somebody in, that actually understands the walk of the life, the language, the tone, it really becomes reflected. You need to allow yourself to be open to letting others in, even if it feels uncomfortable, because where, where you have discomfort is also where you have the most growth. Yeah. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Jess Dayton about her research into how best to support young people's mental well-being at schools and in the wider world. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Professor Jessica Ringrose, Dr Caitlin Riguere, Naomi Peter and Amelia Jenkinson, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.